What makes good sex good? <laughs> ah, great. The, the, the golden question. Trust and patience and talking. I wasn't scared to communicate what I wanted, and neither was she. Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Peak, the talk show about what makes good sex good. I'm your host, Robin Wheelock, and today I am joined with relationship coach and yoga instructor, Ayla Grace. Ayla, how are you today? I'm doing really good. <laughs> I'm still, it's, today was the first day I actually got to sleep in, so it's nice. That's yeah. marvelous. Sleep is so important. Yeah, yeah. so it's a good day. Good. So why don't we start with you telling us a little more about yourself? Okay. Well, so I am a relationship coach for women. And one of the primary focus points that I have with them is that any external relationship starts internally. And even for me, that started, that journey started a long time ago. Um, I was about 18 and I was a ballerina, had issues with food. And there was a point where I had to go get an MRI and I ended up with tendonitis in my hips and my entire identity as I knew it came crumbling down. And I felt so lost and I needed to find I was looking for external things because school never taught me how to deal with this so I was always looking for external things that I thought with work friends you know alcohol that would make me feel better about myself and so in 2012 I ended up actually getting sober I had gone through a lot in that time span of like 18 years old to 24 and the bottom line is, is what I really learned is that my identity was so wrapped up in external things. And I wanted to give women an opportunity to realize that this is not this isn't how it has to be. It's not how it has to go. The rhetoric around sex, around relationships, around being a human being gets to change. And I had to do it all on my own. And I don't that women specifically need to um, as I work with women. And I also think there are men who facilitate the same thing for men and they do a wonderful job at it. So, yeah. Well, right on. So what led you to becoming a relationship coach? It was as simple as I wish I had somebody teach me what I had to go out, find and learn on my own. And what's that? Um, you know, like I've said already, it's the, the identity and I see it online so much. And it's like a part of me is so I've got so much compassion for knowing where these women are with their posts. And at the same time, like the other part of me and my, you know, super judgmental further along in my journey, like <laughs> I roll my eyes and I'm like, like, really, again, like, haven't we learned this? But the answer is no, we haven't, because the rhetoric around being a woman especially in childhood, depending on what generation you're from. You know, I'm in my early 30s, so I was born in the late 80s, I was raised in the 90s, and the family I grew up in was you're seen and never heard. And that 
rang true even throughout the community that I lived in and then in the school. And so my the only thing that I knew how to connect with was the things that I loved doing. And I wrapped my identity up in that, whether it be a boyfriend or ballet or musical theater or working. I worked in the music industry for 10 years and it's like we don't that's not what identifies us as humans or people or women um, or men even. But because we're not taught this, we have to like take a step back from all of the external things and go inward through meditation, through journaling, to be willing to actually look at the stuff we're telling ourselves, the record player we have going in our head, because I started doing, um, I practice Kundalini yoga and I teach Kundalini yoga. And one of the meditations I did was called Siddharshan Chakra Kriya. It's not necessarily an easy beginner meditation. Um, but what I noticed by doing that particular meditation was I started to catch my thoughts as they were happening where I normally wouldn't because I was doing it. I did it consistently 31 minutes for 40 days. That was the practice I wanted to just try to see what my experience would be with it. Um, and I noticed myself catching the thought and then playing it out and seeing my, my mind play it out. And having that ability to take people through that process in other ways, not just with this one meditation, um, it provides freedom from being wrapped up and lost in the relationship. And it provides the ability to be like, he can go hang out with his friends. I can go hang out with my friends and I don't have to be neurotic or in fear or insecure that he's going to do something because I'm projecting what my ex-boyfriend did to me. Because that's the other thing. We take baggage from old relationships into new ones and it, you're already setting yourself up to fail, which is mind, which is mind blowing to me. And it's like, we don't, mm -hmm. every relationship could be a success if we wanted it to be, you know, regardless of how it ends, regardless of if it ends in a wedding or kids or, you know, if it ends in a mutual breakup because you both have the clarity to be like, okay, like this clearly isn't working out. Are we willing to put the energy forward into the relationship to work it out? Or are we done? Like being able to have that adult of a conversation in a neutral, non-emotionally charged space is a very challenging thing to do. And it's like, when women have their identity and their strength and their sense of self, that conversation becomes very easy. Asking for what they want in the bedroom becomes very easy because it's like, this is who I am. Like, take it or leave it. And there's no fear or insecurity about being judged. It's neutral and it's quite lovely. And I think giving women that, I didn't have that. So I was quiet in the bedroom a lot and not receiving what I wanted to. So through my own experience and lack of what I didn't have, I didn't even know that I wanted until I started doing the work. And then I realized what I wanted, <laughs> you know, it gave me a voice and it gave me the ability to be like, Oh, well, if I'm like this, there's gotta be more than a handful of other women who really need this as well. And so that's kind of, that's the long version of it. <laughs> awesome. So you mentioned your work as a yoga teacher and your personal yoga practice. Um, 
Did your journey with yoga come before you decided to become a relationship coach or were they sort of simultaneous? They were not simultaneous. Um, I was in ballet camp in 2004 when I was required to take a class as part of the summer camp intensive. And that's when we, we did yoga and Pilates as part of just strength training um, and flexibility, which I thought was really interesting that this particular ballet intensive camp wanted us to do that. And so it was for me, it was on and off until I got sober. So I was I was doing yoga on and off from 2004 to 2012. And I feel like I was living in Philly at the time. And so there wasn't a whole lot of options in the way of yoga. And I also was still drinking, so I couldn't really afford <laughs> going to yoga classes. So I just did the best I could with my at-home practice. And it, it wasn't that great. But when I got sober, I decided to get certified uh, to teach vinyasa because it, I knew it helped me. And by doing that, I just immersed myself in the yoga practice. But that was only vinyasa yoga. So I had started teaching vinyasa in 2012. I found kundalini yoga in 2014 when I was working at a festival called Wanderlust Yoga Festival. I was doing yoga operations. Um, so I was basically just overseeing all of the different rooms to make sure that they had everything that they need, that the audio was working, that the people who were staffed to work there were there. And I met this woman named Guru Jagat. And she's just this very radiant, very magnetic woman. And she's walking in in all white and a white turban. And I just hadn't, I had no idea. I had no idea what I was about to enter into. Um, and so I saw her the first weekend. I was so busy. I didn't have time to stop and really talk to her, but I had time to talk to her as one of the guys that was with her, Julian, who does her audio and video for Rama TV. And I asked him, I was like, what? I was like, I don't want to sound ignorant, but I was like, what's with the white? Because <laughs> I was, it was so strange to me. And he explained the fact that the all white is considered in that particular tradition. It's called Bana and it amplifies the aura and purifies the aura. So it makes you more radiant and people respond to you very differently when you're in all white versus other colors. And so the second week I ran into her, I just that entire week in between seeing her, I was just like, I need to be around her. I don't know what it is. I can't explain it. Like I, ju I just want to be like near her. And, you know, as I learned more about the practice, it made more sense. Like it's her aura, it's her magnetism, it's her energetic field. The, the energy she's giving off is very healing or it's very desirable. It's something that I wanted and I was craving. And so I talked to her a little bit and she invited me the following week or two weeks later to a, a retreat that she was doing uh, for her women's community for a program called Immense Grace. And it was in that moment when I went up there and I started helping cook in the kitchen and we went to the yurt to like sit and do meditation and yoga. And it was like, I just cracked open. I just started crying and I had them the biggest release of a cry that I've, I've never had like before. And so it was in that moment where I was like, Oh, okay. Like there's something really valuable here. And so from that point on, I really started to move away from vinyasa and into kundalini yoga and this year i'm actually i'm finishing up my teacher training right now 
Um, but they're very much practitioners of if you have a practice that you have a deep relationship with, they're like, just teach it, teach what you know, because if you know the teachings, you can give it to somebody and help somebody else, which I find incredibly um, beautiful as an opportunity. So it was kind of and in 2017 is really when I started doing the relationship coaching when I went to Bali. <laughs> So there, there is an overlap, but it's they were not hand in hand by any means. Would you say that you use principles of your yoga practice within your relationship coaching? 100%. I feel like half of my coaching is talking about the, the kundalini teachings or the kundalini perspective, because we all are seeking more energy in our lives. We need more energy. If we have more energy, we can make more money. We can find the love of our lives. We can, you know, we can do things we don't really have the energy to do. But because we're doing things that really cause us to numb out, whether it's food, certain music or even television shows, we're we're on the, the scale of more exhausted than not. And it's like if we just started to breathe a little bit deeper and more intentionally every day, that would help give us the energy our body actually needs, um, which is like the big thing that they just, they kept going on about in teacher training. It's the prana, which is the breath that creates the energy, which amplifies the aura, which allows you to hold the prosperity or the relationship or, you know, the job whatever it is you're seeking to have a bigger experience of. So, yeah, I use it a lot because these women come to me because they don't know how to communicate and they don't know how to communicate because they have childhood trauma, you know, or relationship trauma or whatever the thing is. And so it's about working through the, the, the stories, the belief systems, the programming, you know, the very, very intricate programming we've been raised with to debunk everything we think we know. Wow. That's really fascinating. <laughs> it's deep. <laughs> <laughs> so you speak on your website pretty openly about being a retired sex worker. Yeah. What can you tell us about that chapter of your life? So... It was interesting because I was not in an empowered place and it really fueled the thought form for me that men just wanted to use me. And so I got to mm -hmm. see the worst of the worst. And that's not to say every woman is like that who are sex workers. Some of them love it. And I'm like more power to them because they're I, unpopular opinion especially within the community that i'm in but all of these things exist for a reason um and and i do believe you know people it's like people cheat because they want to feel alive people cheat because they're not getting what they need at home and it's no excuse to cheat but it's why people do like that the driver is they're not getting what they need um and it really for me it didn't make me feel good feeling like I was the other woman, but I did make money and I was, you know, I was good at it and I, I did it. And then it got to the point where I just knew it was time to stop. Um, 
I don't really think that any of the men disrespected me. They probably devalued me because I didn't value myself, but that was only in response to me and how I felt about myself, not what they actually thought about me. It's what they felt that I felt about myself. And so, you know, I was even working in strip clubs and like I've had men throw change at me on the stage and I would get so angry. Like, how dare you? You know, but the reality of it is, is I didn't have much respect for myself at that time. And it had nothing to do with the stripping or the sex work, but it had everything to do with the energy and the direction that I approached it with. I think now the idea to me, like I want to start doing burlesque dancing again, just because I love dancing. I think it's fun. And I think there's something very feminine and provocative about it that is so beautiful. May not be a glamorous way of going about it, but it it evokes a feeling in me that I wish I had back then Mm -hmm. that I didn't know that I had access to tap into about honoring that deep part of me as a woman mm-hmm. that is very sensual um, in kind of in Kundalini yoga, they would compare it to like the Adi Shakti, which is really like part of it is this, the deep divine feminine power. You could, a woman can control a man. She can manipulate him if she wants very easily and do it in a way where it actually elevates the relationship And it's not toxic, but you have to know how to control the energy. And these are all things I wish I knew because I would have, I probably would have made more money. The men would have treated me differently. Um, I did, but I also don't think I ever put myself in serious danger. Like when I was doing the sex work, I always had a friend who knew where I was Mm -hmm. at all times. Like they had, they, they had like the find my iPhone thing you know Mm -hmm. so they knew where I was until you know until I was done and then I would tell them like hey I made it home safe and they knew if they didn't hear from me to call the police yeah because you don't you don't know what you're getting into and I and I do think on some energetic level you we do attract bad things that do happen to us whether we're consciously aware of it or not is a completely different story and how we handle it from there is really the testimonial of the difference between a victim and a survivor is really how are you going to handle this, which that takes an incredible amount of energy mm-hmm. to to move through that, which a lot of people do not have right now. Very fascinating. I have a few follow-up questions. Um, so what made you decide to get into sex work and what was that process of getting into that field for you the money (laughs) it was the money um like I said like I didn't have a very good view of myself and I didn't really see myself as capable of getting a high-paying job outside of using my body um which is Mm -hmm. I can say it now and be like I don't want to say that I'm not emotional about it because I do I feel feelings about it like the fact that I didn't think highly of myself is very, it's a very interesting concept that this is how we're basically teaching our women to be, you know, um, 
given the the sphere of influence that's on TV and social media right now. And so I think my entire value was placed in my looks and my body. And it was easy. It was easy money. I didn't have to think. It was just, and like I numbed out, like I just drank. It was one of those things. And so I just went online and applied to be a sugar daddy or a sugar mama or sugar, sugar baby. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I signed up and did that. And then I, cause to me, that's sex work. You're trading sex for money, no matter, no matter how you sugarcoat it. There is an exchange. Um, mm-hmm. and I think I also did the cam girl stuff and like the photos and the videos. And so like I sold a- essentially amateur porn. Um, you know, and just the, that particular experience I think was more, even though I wasn't physically in the same energetic field with somebody, it was far more draining to do the cam stuff because you got paid way less and you had to be way more creative and you had to have a way bigger personality to come through. Um, and I just, I didn't have the, I, I was still rough around the edges. I wasn't as soft as I am now. And I wasn't, I don't think I was necessary. I don't want to say I wasn't as pleasant, but there was definitely, there was definitely like a couple jagged edges <laughs> still within me because I was trying to figure out I was just trying to figure out the the thing and then I ended up getting in into the music industry and so when I wasn't on the road that's what I did to make money between the stripping the camming and the you know the other sex work like it just helped fill the gaps and I did it for a couple years but when I started to when I really got sober and started to do the work I realized I couldn't do it sober so I stopped Right on. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. Um, I have another follow-up question. So you talked about how um, you worked as a stripper previously, and you're interested in uh, becoming a burlesque dancer. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people associate um, those two types of performance with each other, but I also know that they're very different. Um how do you see those differences and can you speak about that a bit? Yeah. I mean, they're the, they're the same and they're different at the same time. <laughs> um, it's still the same act of the, like you're stripping. There's still that act, but there you're, you're not on a pole and you're not subjected to giving lap dances where strippers primarily make them the bulk of their money. Um, and for me, that's what I hated the most about that job was having to pedal lap dances. I didn't mind dancing on stage. That was easy. People weren't touching me. People weren't, you know, trying to put their mouth in various body parts, um, <laughs> you know. And I, and I think that there is an element of more playfulness in the burlesque community. Like, you, it, it really was, it was originally created to relieve the depression. So it was more satirical, comical, you know, playful for the 1920s and 30s, if you will. It wasn't too risque. Like the some of the women in some of the places had to wear full nude bodysuits underneath their outfits. But 
there's still something very glamorous and very feminine and very beautiful about it because there's a a space for the woman to fully express herself in a way that isn't purely driven by the man's desire or the male gaze. A lot of the women who do it, my understanding, they do it for them. They're not doing it for anybody else. They're doing it because they love it. They love the era that they're they're portraying, whether it's the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, and even 60s. Some of the women do 60s numbers or they just they're funny people and they need a way to express themselves. But they know they're not a stand up comedian because they get afraid when they like stand in front of the microphone. But they, they, they're totally fine with being on stage. So it's a different way for them to use their craft as a vehicle to be what they want. And so I worked for Dita Von Teese on one of her tours selling her merch. And it was just like being around those women was a very interesting experience because they were, for the most part, like we had all these laughs and it was great. And they went on stage and people loved the whole effect. And it was granted that tour was definitely a higher production than you get compared to most burlesque scenes. But New York has a wonderful burlesque scene. It's amazing. Um, and it, that's what really I was like, well, like, this is amazing. You know, even though the dressing rooms are really small, <laughs> you know, you don't <laughs> want a space or there may not be air conditioning like backstage. It's not as glamorous. But when you get on stage, you're setting if you look at it in a spiritual way, you can use your body and your aura as a way to move energy that can be creative. It can be clearing. It can be inspiring. It can be purifying for people just by you standing on stage being your true self. Or you could be giving another woman permission in the crowd to own who she is. And she's probably like thinking about breaking up with her boyfriend who took her, who's a scumbag or who doesn't really respect her the way that she wants to be respected, right? And she wants to find a sense of empowerment. And maybe it gives her permission to start doing it or go take a class or do something other than what she's doing where she's stuck at. And for me, it's always about, it. it's, it's an art form. It's a beautiful art form, whether it's the costumes, the hair, the makeup, or the actual number. Whereas stripping and saying, okay, you put the clothes on, okay, you got the fake lashes, nails, whatever. It's like you dance on stage and make a couple bucks. And then you have to go around and like talk and engage. And you, there's a, it's a lot of work for a little bit of money. And then you have to tip people out and pay people to work. And it's like, is it really worth it? And it takes a minute to build regulars who will come see you when you, you know, whether you text them or they come in, you know, you know, they come in Wednesdays and Sundays. It's, it's very, it's very different in terms of experience as the performer, very different. So I would like to move into the more personal part of the interview, although it's already been very personal. And I thank you for that. Um, <laughs> Tell us about your sexual identity and personality. Okay. So I am, I believe the appropriate term is a cis hetero female. Um, I identify as she and I feel like I can, I can appreciate the female body. It's just not for me. It's never been for me. Um, 
but I also, and, and I am a monogamous woman. I, and I'm very picky about the relationships I have. So I'm not usually not in a relationship because they, there is, this is the, the inner work I have to do. I'm attracting people who can't hold what I'm doing or can't be okay or confident in what I'm doing. Um, but I do, I am monogamous and I, and I think part of it is because of the work that I do. It's just a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of dealing with other people's stuff that to potentially be poly or open requires an extra level of energy. I don't, I don't have. However, I do believe that there are certain people who that suits very beautifully, but it requires, especially Polly, a significant amount of communication and a healthy sense of self and security and willingness to communicate. Um, so, yeah. So how would you describe your first time having sex or a significant early sexual experience? This is really interesting because I feel like most women, discover self-pleasure and masturbation when they're in their early teens. I was a late bloomer. I didn't lose my virginity, I think, until I was 17. It was my second boyfriend. And it was uneventful, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I think sometimes it's just kind of nice to get it out of the way, you know, because I was raised in, I was raised in a home with two, my parents were married and I had a sister who was 13 months older than me, but it wasn't like my parents handed me a book and they're like, here you go. This is your education. If you have any questions, ask me. It's like, okay. Like, and the, the book I, like I knew as a kid, like I was so fascinated by it. I didn't know why I was like, oh, like this is really like, I couldn't stop staring at the book. <laughs> I couldn't stop reading it. Um, but like, I remember being younger and like finding my parents to be a just tape of porn and, um, you know, and like watching Cinemax and HBO, even though we didn't have the channel. So it's like, you know, the the fuzziness on the screen of like, oh, like, what are we going to see? I was always really curious, but I never really had the opportunity until I was a little bit older, my senior year in high school. And so. But it was I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what I was doing. He didn't know what he was doing. Um, and. I. Part of me wants to say, like, I wish it was as magical as they talk about, <laughs> you know, because they're like, save it for your person and like, wait till marriage. And that's just not necessarily the most realistic thing today. Um, so I think if we could actually really if I was more encouraged to self-pleasure, I think it could have been a better experience. I don't really think it's I started enjoying it. I mean, I did enjoy my my first long-term relationship, my high school sweetheart. I did enjoy intimacy with him and, and being sexual with him. I did receive pleasure, but it wasn't as frequent as I would have liked. Now it can be almost every time. Like I can climax almost every time. I feel like that's not, not every woman has that ability, but I would have liked to have been more competent and more open as a young woman, understanding my body better, but I didn't. And so I think I was a little disappointed more than anything with my first experience. Although my first boyfriend, <laughs> my sister nicknamed sex hair because <laughs> he had like long shaggy hair and he was like into 80s metal. Um, 
you know, we were like, we would like heavy make out, but that's all we did. Um, and he was like in college and like, I was the cool one. Cause like, I brought, I thought I was being cool at the time. Like I broke up with him cause like he was going to college and like, he was going to have opportunities and I didn't want to be the reason he missed out. Like that was my excuse. <laughs> was that the real reason? Like, um, I don't know. Like I, part of me felt like he needed to go out and have experiences that wasn't with somebody in high school, you know, that so with someone who had a car that could like visit him. And but I, you know, even like reflecting on it now, like I don't, I don't know, I don't know what would have changed or how different it would have been had it been him and not my boyfriend who I, I dated my high school sweetheart for like two and a half years. Um, he was a year younger than me for two years a year. He was in one grade. I don't remember, but you know, like I went to prom and graduated and then I went to his proms and, and um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a neutral feeling. Like I'm just not sure if, but I know it would have like my experience and the way I would have, would have gone about relationships would have been different because having the, that person would have been a different experience Mm -hmm. than who I was with. So would you tell us about some of your best sexual experiences? Oh man. (laughs) Okay. Partnered or solo. Well, I, I feel like when I started to understand my body better, which wasn't really that long ago, um, when I really started to break the stigma of having shame around self-pleasure, that's when things started to get better because I knew how to ask for what I wanted or what I would not necessarily what I wanted, what I needed to have the experience I wanted to have. And so I think it's for me, it really started with exploring with different toys and you know really being present and reprogramming my brain around the shame and like oh, I just have to get it over with because you know the only people who self they're not in relationship like they're single like they're no but like that was what I thought about myself when I would go through my self-pleasure experience which is so crazy to me thinking about it now <laughs> as I'm sitting here talking about it, I'm like that's insane <laughs> But if I have that thought, other people do, too. So, you know, um, but I I particularly found more intense pleasure when there was double penetration, whether it was partnered or solo. And but it's not an all the time thing. I think I can find as much enjoyment with a partner, just regular, normal vanilla <laughs> type of, type of <laughs> encounters. Um, but I also think too, for me, my partner, if there is a physical person, he has to be of a certain shape and size for me to know that this is either not going to work. Um, which I find incredibly interesting because like if he's too big, it's not going to be enjoyable for me. If he's too small, I'm not going to feel anything. And so when I've had those relationships, I've had to connect, I've had to learn how to connect with my partner in other ways, which then made oral more enjoyable to receive because it really challenged me 
to learn how to do other things. So I know it's a little vague, but I almost feel like as soon as I unlocked the shame, a lot of my experiences started to be great. And not, I'm not talking like sparks and passing out or tears, but able to just <laughs> achieve climax, I feel like for me was the goal was just to be able to climax. And I have never, I think only once or tw- twice, maybe I'm really trying to recall very rarely have I been able to have multiple orgasms with a partner with a toy. It's incredibly different because I feel like it requires a deeper level of trust. I don't think I ever had with any of my partners because it's like I put the there's a wall, you know, and like it's it's my stuff I get to work on, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> the fact that even though I get to work with women, it's like okay, like this is my thing that I have to work through. Um, I'm like I I've just always seen myself as a one and done when I'm with some when when I'm with another partner, but or like one in the morning, one at night but not within a two or three hour session of having two, three, four orgasms. Um, It's just never been, that's never been the norm for me. So I find it. Yeah. I feel like I've, you know, there've only been, I think a handful of times in the last couple of years where it's like, I haven't been able to climax And when I, and I just, I internally know because I can't physically get present in my body. Like I'm so up in my head or I'm so concerned or worried about something else that that wall just, it doesn't allow me to receive pleasure. So I feel like for me, again, kind of partnering really lovely with my monogamy, (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, I have to have a level of trust with my partners. Because even when I was in sex work, like I didn't, it was never pleasurable for me. It was never, it was never about me. So I feel like, you know, I would of cam stuff. But even then, like I, it was a one and done sort of thing. And then I'd have to leave for a couple hours, like rehydrate, whatever, come back. And it, so it, it yeah, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really like thinking about it right now. It's like, huh, that's interesting. It's really interesting, but good. Yeah. The way you describe um, knowing what you need now shows that you're very much in touch with your body and you know what will work for you and what won't. Um, And you mentioned earlier, like, knowing that like a certain size and shape of a penis is going to be what works for you. How do you go about having a conversation with a partner who you want to be intimate with, but whose body is different and you realize this isn't going to get me to the climax that I want to have? Like, how do you have that conversation? I mean, I consider it like any other conversation. Um, I'm not, I don't, I don't beat around the bush about it. Um, but I'm also not like on the first date being like, you have to be this size and shape. <laughs> Cause that's just strange. Um, traditionally, like I connect with them. I 
tried it with, I go on dates or I know I'm going to be intimate with somebody. I try to connect with them in other ways. And I try to really enrich foreplay with those people or using toys or finding other ways to be creative about it, which has actually benefited me and my business when giving clients ideas. Um, I don't necessarily feel like I need to have that conversation of being like, oh, if you're not this size or shape, then you're it's just not going to work. Um, for me, it's rather we talk about likes and dislikes. And we can we start a healthy line of communication about the whole gamut and spectrum of what it is to have sexual intimacy and what that looks like for them and what it looks like for me. Cause like one of my, one of my little desires that I have that I haven't done yet because I want to do this with someone that I, that I am in relationship with is, is I want to go to a club. Like I want to go to a sex club um, and, and experience the idea of being intimate with my partner there and having people watch <clears throat> But the thing with that is, is you have to find somebody who's okay with that. They have to be confident enough and secure in themselves and not afraid. And so if I'm going to be intimate with somebody and I notice that they have insecurities, like I wait a little bit longer to be intimate with them because I feel like if you're going into it and they're not secure in themselves and you know that they're not the they're either too big or too small or too wide or like whatever the thing is about the shape of their penis, you know, it's not going to add value to them. It's not going to elevate them as a man to be like, Oh, you were the wrong size for me. Instead of just like, you know, like let's use, let's use a vibrating cock ring or let's use a toy or, you know, and that's when you can introduce like anal or DP and by knowing that I'm very particular about that and it's not that I just completely steer away from regular vaginal intercourse because I don't but I add to I look for ways to add to or improve the experience as suggestions without flat out being like you you know like the the way you were genetically made up sucks for me (laughs) yeah we're not here to give anyone a complex about their penis right like we're we have enough, we have enough like fucked up stories about ourselves and about our childhood and how we were raised and just being human and like why, why it, it's not going to, it's not going to make the experience that you want to have in the relationship with that person better. It's not going to elevate them. So I genuinely think just talking about sexual experiences and desires and dislikes, like what's on the table, what's not on the table really sets you up without having to give someone without having to be like you're the wrong size you know just talk about really just talk about the likes and dislikes what's on the table and what's not I feel like that alone is it avoids having a negative conversation Mm -hmm. that could potentially end up in a fight or a breakup like you don't you don't want that like if you like them and you're thinking about being intimate with them like why introduce that I think that's the best way to explain it. (laughs) I think it was a great explanation. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So in your opinion, what makes good sex good? 
short, sweet, and simple. Understanding your body and being confident and willing enough to try things. And if they don't work, like laugh about it. I think about the uh, that movie, 500 Days of Summer, where they like get the video and they go in the bathroom and try the try to do the thing in the bathroom and they end up mm-hmm. just falling over. It's like sometimes it happens, you know. Sometimes you just have an off day or you know the thing you think is going to be a great idea turns out being terrible and it's like that's okay at least you tried it like it's an experience <laughs> and it's okay um because i don't i don't think people are going to have great sex 365 days a year mm-hmm. if you do amazing like good on you but very rarely is that the norm and so i think if people just start to normalize the conversation in relationship around sex and likes and dislikes and being willing even play the idea of like masturbation or you masturbating and having your partner tell you what to do in a very loving way as like they're across the room watching you like there's something so to me it feels uh the words that are coming to me are like palpable and enriching other than just vanilla, boring missionary. Like it gets old after a while. It gets boring and it's like, we're constantly looking for ways to have great sex. And it's like, I watch, I keep rewatching sex in the city because it's so toxic, but so funny at the same time. And it's like, it's like, you can't, it's a train wreck and like, you can't take your eyes off of it. But it's taught me so much of what I don't want to do and what I shouldn't do to be able to step into my power to have great sex. And there are so many amazing educators online and and influencers online that give such great suggestions and hold such great space to empower you to be able to be honest with yourself about the quality that you're having with your partner, quality of sex that you're having with your partner, you know? So I really, it's, it's communication, openness, and honesty. Ultimately, mm-hmm. if I were to sum it up. Well, I'm coming to my last question. Okay. Which, which is, so over the years of your experiences with sex, what would you say you have learned what have been the most valuable lessons for you? That loving myself is the most attractive quality a man can see in a woman. And I would say it's probably the, just because it's not my experience, but I would assume as well it's the same for every other human being on the planet when they see their partner in all their glory, just loving themselves instead of being neurotic and picking themselves apart in the mirror, being self-conscious in the bedroom where they have to turn off the lights because they don't like to look at themselves naked because they've got like a single roll below their belly button. Um, I think it really is about loving yourself no matter what shape and or size you are or the color of your skin, or however you identify, the sexiest thing someone can do is actually really love themselves and bask in the radiance and energy of what that 
actually looks like for them. For me, that's been um, a very liberating experience of just learning how to love myself in all my glory as a woman makeup that I have. Well, Ayla, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for having me. This has been such a pleasure. Probably my favorite podcast so far. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you. That's so, that's so nice to hear. Yeah. All right. Uh, Do you have any closing words for our listeners? Love yourself more. Speak up for what you want and honor every part of yourself. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Peak, which was hosted and produced by me, Robin Wheelock. Our theme music was produced by Johnny Manchild of Johnny Manchild and the Poor Bastards. You can follow The Peak on Facebook or on Twitter and Instagram at Listen to the Peak. For more information, visit us at thepeak.blueberry.net. That's thepeak.blubrry.net. If you want to support The Peak, you can make a contribution to our Coffee, Venmo, or PayPal accounts so that we can make better and more frequent episodes for you. You can also support us by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes or wherever it is you listen. Thank you.